Hi, I'm Terry Woods. This is a special Christmas series and part of Texas Storytellers. Oh, you know the rest. We're brought to you by Woodlands Online. You can watch us on Woodlands Online on their Roku station. You can hear us on Spotify and iHeartRadio, Stitcher and others. And we have a special sponsor for this series, Herb and Beat. I gotta tell you, this series includes another friend of mine who is a Texas storyteller, for real. And he's done some episodes of Texas Storytellers, Mark Hader. Mark Hader has written some stories, especially for Christmas, and he is going to read them. And at times, he's even going to let his wife, Kay, read some. So, without further ado, Mark Hader and his stories. And you're going to hear Kay, too. Enjoy! Welcome back. It's time for another story. A storybook story of a collection of stories. <laughs> written by Mark Hader, which would be me. Anyway, this one's called Josh Meets Grandpa Ed. Listen up. Too many aunts and uncles. Too many cousins. Too much giggling. Too much family. And not one of them was related to Josh. Oh, and remember the time Fran tried to climb the... That's all it took to kick off another round of laughter. A laughing and constant Gabbing started the minute he entered the front door and continued through supper into dessert and beyond. One time he counted five simultaneous conversations at the dinner table. The rule of the house was apparently to just pick yourself a conversation and join in. The living room, the kitchen, the dining room, there was no escape. The night belonged to the family. In truth, he was jealous. He was an only child whose parents had decided to take a cruise during the holidays. They would celebrate Christmas with their son when they returned. So, it was perfectly logical for Josh to accept an invitation to a Christmas Eve gathering. Logic? Bah! After a couple of grueling hours, he casually made his way to the guest room where he located his jacket beneath a pile of coats and wraps. He walked down the hallway and out the front door careful not to draw attention. The cold hit him instantly. He folded his arms and leaned against the porch railing. He was tempted to go back inside, but wanted to tough it out as long as possible. He was looking at the lame, frosty, the snowman display on the lawn across the street when he heard, So, which one are you? He hoped his frightened jerk appeared comically exaggerated. Uh, to add credence to the uh, false notion, he quickly assumed a martial arts pose. You about scared me to death, he said. The old man sitting on the porch swing smiled, but just barely. So? Oh, I I'm with Allison, your, your granddaughter? I know who she is. Well, well yeah, anyway, I'm her boyfriend, uh, date. Uh, she invited me, I'm Josh. He walked over and shook hands with the party's supposed host. So, you want to marry her? Uh, am I going to... Sheesh. <laughs> uh, no. At least not after this. There, there's massive chaos going on in there. I think I could dance uh, on the table without being noticed. 
Yeah, it's a bit much to take in, isn't it? That's why I'm out here. Through the years, I pushed Grandpa to the side. I apparently repeated my old stories a few too many times. I'm out of the loop nowadays, so I thought I'd come out here to sulk. Yeah, I think we're both feeling a bit superfluous. Superfluous? Yes, sir. Uh, you know, uh, not needed, sort of like, uh, I know what the word means, young man. I just wasn't expecting it. The awkward exchange went on for several minutes before leveling out with sports, politics, life. In time, the conversation took them off the porch and on a trek down the sidewalk that skirted the street. They used the walk to stay warm. So, uh, Grandpa Ed, uh, what was it you retired from? Worked at a refinery for 32 years. 32 mindless years. Hated every minute of it. There was this horn that blew every day at... Tom Edwards had really wanted to be a, a writer. He told Josh so. He had even written the beginnings of a half dozen novels, mostly westerns. It was his cruel self-criticism and the reality of raising a family that caused him to drop each project. He hadn't written anything in years. You're not too old to start up again, Josh told him. Look at Grandma Moses. Do you know how old she was when she started writing? I mean, painting? What was it she did? Hey, it's your analogy or metaphor. I don't know. What do they call the Grandma Moses thing you were doing? Uh, an example, Ed? Work with me here. A decade from now, you'll be walking down the same road on Christmas Eve with your great-granddaughter's date, and you still won't have a novel. Such a waste. Oh, yeah? Well, you're the one about to get a law degree, and uh, you don't even want to be a lawyer. He didn't either. Josh was going through the motions for his dad. His dad longed for the day when Josh would be a partner in the firm. Problem was, Josh wanted to be a teacher. He wanted to teach English literature, if you can believe that. Didn't have the guts to tell his dad. Telling Ed had been uh, so much easier. The two of them walked and talked well over an hour when Ed noticed they were on a cul-de-sac. He didn't remember any cul-de-sac in the neighborhood. He knew that they could eventually find their way back, but he was too pooped to go much further. He scolded Josh for not paying a, a better attention as to how they got where they were. Josh knew where they were, he just didn't know how they got there. However, he did come up with an answer to their dilemma. He actually borrowed part of the answer from Ed. Ed suggested they knock on someone's door and ask for directions. Josh thought the idea was dumb. Two guys, late at night, knocking on doors, asking directions. They'd end up going home in a squad car. All right, so, so we can't ask directions because it's stupid, Grandpa had said. I did not say it was stupid, Josh said. I said it was dumb. There's a difference. And, and what would that difference be, Mr. Weisenheimer? Well, stupid is mean-sounding. Dumb is nicer. And I didn't say dumb, sir. Far from it. I just said that your idea was ill-conceived. What we need to do is ill-conceived? You said it was dumb. Your daddy is right. You, you should be a lawyer. You're already uh, great at twisting words around. Okay, Ed, sir. I think the cold is making us crazy here. Uh, what I propose is that we go over to the third house on the right, the one with the lights and the giant Lincoln Navigator in the drive. We don't even knock on the door. We stand on the porch and start singing Christmas carols. 
Singing? Are you out of your mind? That crazy bunch we left at the house is looking for an excuse to have me committed. And you want me to just hand one to them? Uh, no, sir, Josh said. Look, it's Christmas Eve, so it would be only natural that someone would be out singing carols. Great. So get your butt across the street and start singing, but you're doing it by your lonesome. When the ambulance drives up to haul off your bullet-riddled carcass, I'll ask him to drop me off at the house. That's what I call a well-conceived plan. You're right. If I go by myself, I get shot. But the two of us can pull this thing off. Work with me, Grandpa Ed, Josh said. When we start singing, someone will come to the door, offer us some bad wassail, and eventually ask where we came from. You'll say the name of your street, Camille. So the person says, Camille? Wow, that's four blocks east and seven blocks north of here. Y'all must be tired and have to pee. Ed couldn't hold back a laugh. You beat all. <laughs> you know that, he said. Okay, I'm too tired to argue and I do have to pee. So let's, uh, let's do this thing. When they got to the house with the giant SUV, they got in a disagreement over which song to sing. Jingle Bells was not happening. Ed hated the song. It had been way overdone. Anyway, finally they settled on the 12 days of Christmas. They nailed the first day of Christmas, but they didn't project much. Not at all. On the second day of Christmas, they got much louder, but really messed up the lyrics. Ed's true love gave him two swans a-swimming, while Josh got two golden rings. It wasn't working. They were dying right there on the porch. When they managed to stop laughing, they looked at each other for a brief moment and then both at the top of their lungs saying, Jingle bells, jingle bells. They kept repeating the first verse until Morris Fetterman turned on the porch light and opened the door. Fetterman lived in the yellow ha uh, Victorian house across the street. Uh, Josh and Ed waved big and then crossed over to speak with Morris. That was a pretty pathetic gentleman, uh, Morris said, but, but it was loud. Unfortunately, not loud enough to wake the Berkleys. They're a sweet but near-deaf couple. Ed told Morris that he was all wrong. Uh, a deaf elderly couple would not own a Lincoln Navigator. Morris explained that it was a gift from one of their sons. He's some fancy lawyer, works in a tall pointy building in San Francisco. Ed turned to Josh and said, and you want to be a teacher. Morris Fetterman said, my son-in-law is a teacher, a, a professor, actually. He, he then swung the door open and motioned the two sidewalk vagabonds into the house. Neither of them would uh, leave the mat at the entrance, though. Look, we're, we're not tracking anything inside your lovely home, Josh said. Ed slipped off his boots and announced that he had to pee. About that time, Mrs. Fetterman came out of the kitchen uh, to ask uh, who wanted wassail. Her husband asked her uh, for two warm mugs. Josh asked if uh, she had any to-go cups that they were kind of in a hurry. While Ed was in the bathroom coaxing his bladder along, Josh explained to Morris and his wife Nancy about their predicament. He even had time to explain the chaos back at Ed's house. Nancy said that their chaos left a couple of hours prior. Her daughter had refused to take her vat of wassail home and, uh, with her and asked if she could just leave it here at my house. Josh offered to pour the stuff out on their way back because he didn't think Ed would care to lug it all the way home. Nancy said, Nonsense! Morris is driving you both home. Morris said, I am? Hey, I'm only joking. I've got the keys to the Berkeley's Navigator and that thing needs to get out a little more. 
Josh resisted, saying that they merely needed directions, at which time Ed walked in and, having caught the last part of the conversation, told Josh to be quiet, that he really needed the ride. During the roundabout ride to Camille, the three men laughed a lot, even butchered a couple of carols. Eventually, Morris Fetterman dropped Ed and Josh off at the corner of 11th and Camille. Ed refused to be driven all the way to the front door of his house because he didn't want to be seen climbing down from a black Lincoln Navigator. As they walked to the porch, Josh asked Ed what he should do with the plastic milk jug full of wassail. Ed said, give me that. I'll leave it in the miller's uh, front uh, on their porch. When he returned, he told Josh, let's bite the bullet in go inside. Everybody is probably waiting for me to hand out the presents. Josh questioned the opening of gifts on Christmas Eve, but Ed told him they were gifts from family, not Santa. They would open Santa's gift the following morning. Josh tried to explain to Ed that Santa was merely a myth, but Ed told him to stop with his silly talk. The two of them were laughing as they entered the house. They entered to the applause and hugs from the crowd and to stern looks from two of the women in the group. Allison was a bit perturbed that uh, she had not been informed of the Caroline excursion. Grandma Edwards was upset with her husband for making up such a story. Josh was one of the few to leave the Edwards home that night. Most of the family would stay till morning, uh, you know, to open the Santa's gifts. Josh explained that he had failed to inform Santa of any sleepover, so he'd best uh, return to the apartment. Ed followed Josh and Allison to the porch where he told Josh to come back soon. He was stern about it. We're having a New Year's party and expect to see you. It will eclipse everything you witnessed here tonight. Ed told his granddaughter to see that Josh was there for New Year's. She promised uh, he would be there. Josh told the old man that the next time he saw him, he expected to read his first chapter. Ed told his young friend that life was too short to work at something you don't enjoy. He told him not to follow his example or metaphor. They both grinned at that. After Grandpa went inside, Allison apologized for leaving him out and devoting too much of her attention to his family. Josh told her not to worry that he and Ed enjoyed their brief time together. Allison asked why he called her Grandpa Ed. His name is Thomas. Thomas Edwards? Josh said he knew that, but back in the day, the baseball players on the semi-pro team called her Grandpa Ed. He liked the name. Allison said she knew her grandpa played ball, but didn't remember any of the particulars. Before he left and immediately before the goodnight kiss, Allison again apologized to Josh for ignoring him and leaving him out all. Before he left and immediately before the goodnight kiss, Allison again apologized to Josh for ignoring him, leaving him out of all the fun. Nonsense, Josh said. This was the best Christmas Eve I've ever had. It had been, too, but there would be others, and as a new tradition, Grandpa Ed would entertain the family by reading uh, his latest Christmas story. (laughs) Hello, my name is Kay Hader, and I'm going to read you a Christmas story from my husband's book called Christmas Storybook Stories. The name of this one is Ellie and the Baseball Man. It's nine more miles to the rest area. Can you hold out that long? Sean kept glancing at the lump in the passenger seat. She was wrapped in a maroon blanket emblazoned with the image of a giant growling grizzly. 
quite appropriate, he thought, considering the low-toned groans and snorts that kept surfacing from beneath the blanket. <coughs> Bless you, Sean responded. You've been making some odd noises under there, but I'm assuming that was a sneeze. So, can you hold out for a few more minutes? The corner of the blanket was slowly withdrawn, just enough to uncover the face of a young lady with a complexion just a wider shade of pale, as the song goes. I'll try not to wet on your precious seat covers, Ellie said, but step on it, would you? Then her face sank again beneath the bare blanket. I hope you realize I would have never agreed to this venture had you mentioned having a bladder the size of a grape, Sean said. Her face appeared much quicker this time. I can't help it. I sometimes get this way when I'm nervous. It has nothing to do with my bladder size, and that was a rude thing to say to a sick person, Mr. Uberman. I've got nothing to do with Uber. I'm just a guy with an old pickup who's trying to get you to Tacoma. You're the one who asked me. And, if you recall, I did not sound the least bit excited about the notion, did I? He did not. Before she contacted him, he was prepared to spend the remainder of the Christmas holidays alone in Mrs. McNatt's garage apartment. He would walk around downtown Missoula and observe all the holiday hoo-ha in one of the most festive locales in the country. Then came the call from an Ellie Sandal. The young lady had a proposition for him, nothing untoward. Remember, this is a Christmas story. No, what Miss Sandal asked was that Sean meet her in the lobby of Dunaway Dorm. There was the sound of desperation in her voice mixed with just a tad of enchantment. She said she knew Sean from church. She was the girl with the short black haircut in a bob usually wore plaid and sat on the left side of the auditorium midway down next to Jaden and Maxie. Sean didn't have a clue. Long story short, Ellie told Sean that she had decided to cut and run, quit the University of Montana and move back home to Tacoma. Short story longer, she hated her major, philosophy. What is it that some people get all excited about what somebody else thinks? Give me a break, she said. For a year and a half, she'd been studying that load of hoo-ha. And get this, she hated her minor nearly as much. Psychology. So, she would take the remainder of her college funds that had generously been provided by her parents and rent an apartment in the city where she could bide her time searching for a job that paid a lot and was fun to do. She was upset she hadn't thought of the idea during her first semester. All Ellie needed was someone to haul her and her stuff to Tacoma. She'd pay $300, the cost of gas and food. Once there, the driver could drop her and her stuff off and leave. Sean had stopped listening after hearing $300. That was two days ago. They were now two hours out of Spokane on a dark desert highway, cold wind in the air. Ellie had a cold or flu and a spastic bladder. Sean was not sure if the two ailments were related. I know you can't help it, Ellie. If I thought you could, I would have left you back at the first McDonald's stop. Ellie's laugh caused her to shoot a stream of snot into the blanket. What did she care? She had left her last shred of dignity back in Missoula. 
Here's the exit, Sean said. Hold on, I'm taking this on two wheels. That was a bit of an exaggeration, considering that the truck was loaded to the brim with the girls' dorm necessities. Ellie was out and running before the truck reached a complete stop. Sean got out to stretch his legs. What a day. What a last couple of days. What a last couple of years. After having to give up his baseball scholarship due to a knee injury, he had to take out a college loan to make it through the, re the remainder of his sophomore year at U of M. He was going to sit out his junior year to raise money for school, but that would mean he would have to save money while paying off his college debt of $6,500. But then he knew it didn't matter because he was near certain that if he sat out a year, he'd never return to college. Then Mrs. Vera McNatt happened. The old widow pulled Sean aside after church service one Sunday morning and told him that she had learned about his scholarship problem and knew that he had to be short of funds. She suggested he move into her upstairs garage apartment. The place would need refurbishing, but it was his for as long as he needed it. She'd furnish the materials for repair if he would take care of the labor involved with fixing the place up. What a godsend for both of them. Over the past several months, Vera McNatt and Sean Sutton had become close friends. Early on, Mrs. McNatt suggested that since he had a pickup and was already driving a few friends back and forth to campus, that maybe he should start up a taxi service to help with his expenses. He was well respected among his peers, so word of mouth would be all he needed for advertisement. Well, the word did get around, and before you could say taxi, he had more fares than he could handle. He wasn't getting rich, but he was getting by. More importantly, he was able to return to U of M for his junior year. But back at the rest stop, Sean was staring at an assortment of canned drinks inside a cage vending machine on the porch when a lone figure sidled up to him and delivered a hip bump. Okay, I'm good to go, Mr. Antsy Pants. You want I should drive? Sean did not want she should, but he was so glad that Ellie was feeling a bit better, at least until she began talking. A lot. She was getting worried about what her parents would think of her quitting college. Sean suggested that the news might go over a bit better if she didn't mention the part about collecting her college money so she could move to an apartment and look for a fun job that paid a lot. Ellie acted hurt that the big dope didn't realize that she was joking. What did he take her for? When asked if she was joking about hating philosophy, she informed him that she was not joking about that. The lie was about her having majored in philosophy, she was a geology major, and she had just failed chemistry. A geologist has to know about minerals and the periodic table and atoms and stuff. How could she be a geologist if she couldn't pass chemistry? Her mom would be so disappointed and her daddy would kill her. Sean asked her why she felt the need to lie to him about all that stuff that he didn't care one way or the other if she wanted to be a psychologist, geologist, or forest ranger. The only thing that truly concerned him was making $300 for transporting her sick butt westward. That's all that mattered to him. That confession won him a good elbow to the ribs. The next town of significance had a small motel with a flashing vacancy sign. 
Ellie told Sean to pull in because she didn't want to meet her family looking and feeling the way she did. What I need is a hot shower, hot soup, and a good night's sleep. Sean told her to just buck up, bundle up, and sh uh, stop talking. She could sleep the rest of the way and might feel better when they arrived. He got no response, so he looked over at his passenger where he picked up some very scary vibes. With that, he pulled over on the shoulder and made a slow but deliberate U-turn. After stopping in front of the office at Maggie's Motel, Sean said, Okay, go check yourself in while I get your suitcase. I'll sleep in the truck, but bring me a fresh blanket and pillow. I refuse to use your snot-laden grizzly blanket. Ellie pushed the passenger door open against the wind, then turned, putting pressure against the door with her rear to keep it from slamming. What's got into you, Mr. Mean Person? Look, I'm paying you more money than I should for you to take me home. I'm sick, and I need to rest in a room fit for sleeping, and all you can do is grouch at me. You're right, it's just that the weather is worse than I expected, and you're more of a doodle than I imagined. Oh, and if you think that $300 is more than this is worth, let me say that I wouldn't have agreed to this trip if you had offered $299. Now, if you will, go get yourself a room. And while you're at it, you might want to ask if they'd fix you some soup. John regretted saying it, but before he could apologize, she stepped away from the door and let the wind slam it shut. Upon getting Ellie's suitcase situated in her room, he began an apology. Look, Ellie, I'm sorry for being so rude. Things are just a little awkward for me now. I'll be right as rain by morning. You mean snow, she said. You'll be right as snow. Get it? Because it's too cold to rain? Yes, I get it. Your psychology course has really paid off, he said. Now, is there anything you need before I take a pillow and blanket and head to the truck? By the way, I'm going to bury your grizzly blanket out there somewhere. All right, let's try to be out of here by eight, okay? Shaking her head, she walked over, gave him a hug and whispered in his ear, nine works better for me. Yes, boss, he said and headed for the door. She told him that if he checked his left back pocket, he'd find a key to the room next door. Ah, that's very nice and explains the unexpected hug. But I've got to tell you, if you think the room is coming out of my $300, I'm headed for the truck. I figured as much, she said, it's on me. I'll see you shortly after 9.30 tomorrow morning. By the way, you need a shower, baseball man. Baseball man? He never told her about being on the baseball team. If he hadn't been so tired, he might have tried to tell her. Baseball man? He never told her about being on the baseball team. If he hadn't been so tired, he might have tried to get her to tell him what was going on. Instead, he went to his room, put the contents of his pockets on the nightstand, slipped off his shoes, and fell across the bed. It couldn't have been more than a minute or two when he was startled by a knock on the door. Sure enough, it was Ellie bundled up in a terry cloth robe. There's a spider in my shower, she said. Sean did not know if Ellie really did see a spider or was just messing with him. She had demonstrated very little that would encourage trust. He couldn't buy the thought that she was flirting with him, so he wagered on the side of her just being nuts. As he steadied himself, against the door leading to Ellie's bathroom, 
or should we say, the entrance to the spider's lair, Jean noticed he was beginning to have chills and a bit of nausea. She was contagious, all right. Having pulled back the shower curtain, he could see no eight-legged creature the size of a cat anywhere in the vicinity. Nothing here, young lady, he said. Look harder, she insisted. He's in there, all right, and I want to hear the sound of snapping spider bones. Yep, she was nuts, all right. Contagious and nuts. Sean grabbed the shower curtain and yanked it open for another look. At that moment, he noticed a silver dollar-sized black spider at eye level. No idea where it came from. It just appeared a few inches from the top of the curtain. Had he been alone, he might have screamed the S-word and fled the room. But he knew if he did, Ellie would go Blair Witch on him. No, he had to be Batman. Spider-Man might have been better in the situation, but Spider-Man moved around too much and Sean just didn't feel up to it. To tell the truth, it was his being sick that really kept him from reacting much at all. There comes a point in a sick person's life when death by spider bite sounds like a blissful passing. Sean calmly turned and took one of the two hand towels from a weird metal rack to the right of the light switch. I told you there was a big spider, Ellie said, crouched behind him. As big as a plate, isn't it? At that very moment, the spider apparently sensed something bad coming its way, so it raced across the curtain and jumped on the cabinet right next to Ellie. Stories have been told throughout eastern Colorado and northern Idaho about how far the screen carried. Perhaps Washington State University will get a grant so it can do a study on it. The only other people in the motel were located at the opposite end of the row of rooms. It took all of two minutes for the manager to throw on a coat and shoes and exit his back bedroom to the door at the entrance of the office. He met a short-statured man, one of the residents in room two, standing on the porch looking down the awning in the direction of the screen. The two did not hurry towards the screen but chose to first discuss what might provoke such a shriek of apparent horror. It took Sean about five seconds to dispatch the humongous arachnid using the hand towel. He could feel the crunching of eight spider legs beneath his hands. He wouldn't swear to it, but he thought he also heard a muffled groan come from the underside of the small towel. Keep in mind, he was a sick man. It took two flushes to successfully bury the behemoth, not because of size, but because a portion of the cadaver had affixed itself to the hand towel. Understanding that the entire population of the motel was probably wondering what happened, Sean stepped outside and yelled, Just a spider attack, nobody hurt. That last part was a lie. Sean was not sure if he would ever regain the hearing in his left ear. At one point during the recovery period, Sean called the front office to inform the manager that he needed to change his motel records to show that he and a Miss Sandal had switched rooms. The clerk responded, Whatever. Sean slept all of 40 minutes before waking with a migraine and cough. He had experienced both ailments before, just not at the same time. Each cough seemed to widen the crack in his skull, and his nose was running to beat the band. He spent the rest of the night taking hot showers to ease the throb in his frontal lobe. Sean and Ellie neglected to exchange room keys, which is how Ellie managed to barge into his room the next morning and announce, I have no hot water. 
Sean had just climbed out of the shower and was wearing a towel. He glanced up to see Ellie, who was wearing no robe this time. What she did ha have on was a pair of white flannel pajamas with a pattern of red and blue balloons. That girl in her balloon pajamas was just about the cutest thing he had ever seen. And he had once seen a panda cub roll down a slide. Staring at Ellie made it difficult for him to express. You look absolutely terrible, she said. Here, let's get that towel off of you and get you back in bed. Sean was in no mood for jokes, nor would he consider staying in the motel for another night. He assured her that they were moving down the road. Ellie gave Sean an assortment of over-the-counter pills that she promised would get him over the mountains. He made it known that he would refuse anything that would make him sleepy. He said, just so you know, I'll have you at your folks' house by nightfall just in time for your family's Christmas Eve party. She assured him that she was unconcerned. They were about 20 minutes down the road when Sean pulled over to let Ellie drive. It's weird how the pills that kept you awake knocked me on my butt, he said. She explained that her body chemistry was different from his. For her, the pill's side effects were daffiness and shrinkage of the bladder. Sean was not conscious during Ellie's few pit stops, and he missed out on the late breakfast and the early supper. He had no memory of snowplows at Snoqualmie Pass. He was fairly conscious when Ellie stopped in the driveway at her folks' home. I can do this, he told himself. He would meet Ellie's folks, unload the truck, take the $300, and spend the night in the Walmart parking lot. That was the plan. He climbed out of the passenger seat, took two steps, and grabbed the side of the truck. Ellie came around to help him. As soon as everything stopped spinning, he said, I'll unload your stuff and then try to escape before anyone notices we've arrived. She had him put his arm around. She had him put his arm over her shoulder and then grabbed him around the waist. Just keep up with me and I'll guide you to the porch, Mr. Spider-Man. There were Christmas lights all over the place. He noticed the decorations as he slowed Ellie's pace in fear he might collapse. Midway between the truck and the house, the front door opened, sending beams of light that almost brought Sean to his knees. Rayford and Charlotte Sandal, Ellie's parents, came rushing down the driveway. Princess, you made it, her dad said, and then moved in for a hug. He was moving from light to dark and didn't notice Sean until moving in for the hug. And who's your plastered passenger? Sean waved off the insult with his free hand. There was an awkward pause that hung like a fog from the movie about, you know, fog. Sean did his best to improve his posture, but could do nothing that might help with his loss of self-respect. Okay, listen up, Ellie said. I'm only gonna... Okay, listen up, Ellie said. I'm only going to say this once. This is Sean, and he picked me up at the dorm to haul me here, only I got sick and we had to stop and stay the night in some town, and he used up all the hot water because it was his turn to get sick, and after I gave him my drugs, he fell asleep, so I had to drive, and the snow hit hard near Snoqualmie Pass. But I followed a plow all the way. She looked up at Sean and said, Did I leave anything out? Sean said, the scream. The quick quip made him aware that as sick as he was, he still maintained his sense of humor. After a head-scratching pause, Mr. Sandal said, You mean you don't know what town you spent the night in? Ellie did a perfect eye roll. 
It was a cheap motel near a town with a fish name. Oh no, her dad said. Don't tell me you guys stayed at Maggie's Motel and Fish Trap. Did you see any spiders? A voice came from behind the gawkers. Sean thought it familiar. Okay, you've had your fun. Rayford, you bring Ellie's stuff into the house and let's get this boy inside. Now scoot. Now scoot. Hmm. Son of a gun. It was his sweet landlord, Mrs. McNatt. Sean beamed as much as it was in him to beam and then suddenly backed away. Mrs. McNatt, stay away. You do not want what I got, he said. Vera stepped forward and threw her arms around him. Tish tosh. You'll never be too sick for me to hug, young man. Besides, I've, besides, I've already had the grunge. In fact, I may have passed it along to Ellie by loaning her my grizzly bear blanket. Ellie didn't act the least surprised that Sean knew her grandma. Vera picked right up on his puzzlement. Now, don't get too upset, son. I simply could not let you spend another Christmas alone. You refused to join me, so I had to trick you into coming here. He felt a bit of a tickle in his heart. It must have been one of the aortas. It was caused by a ridiculous hope that the whole thing was a scheme to match him up with Ellie. And get this, perhaps it was even Ellie's idea. He knew he had to ask Ellie about that. One thing he'd learned from their brief time together was that Ellie had a tell. She never looked him in the eye when she was, for lack of a better word, lying. Ellie's dad came to the front door with a flat screen TV. Punkin, what's going on? You brought everything from your dorm. Ellie gave a surprised look. You mean I didn't tell you? Nothing big, father. I, I just failed chemistry and decided to quit college and come home. I'm pretty sure I told you that. Rayford looked at Vera, his mother-in-law. Did you happen to know that, Mom? Vera looked away and said, It's news to me. Well, little missy, I'll have to ponder this for a while, her dad said. You and me are going to have a serious sit-down. Yes, let's take this up later, Father. As for now, I've got a sick man here. Vera and Ellie's parents went out to the truck. Ellie led Sean over to the love seat and plopped him down. Then she joined him, snuggling up close really close. So how are you feeling, baseball man? What can I get you? Let's try the truth, he said. Was this a scheme to get me here or to get the two of us matched up? Ellie laughed. Whoa, you must think you're hot stuff, Mr. Baseball Man. She looked over at the side table to study one of those little wind-up flipping Santas. Okay, let's say it was a plan to get us together. Would that be such a bad thing? Sean was looking deep into her eyes when he said, I don't know, maybe not, if it was your idea instead of your grandma's. How on earth did that come out? It had to be the pills. Ellie feigned surprise. You caught me off guard, sir. I'll need to ponder this. With that, she somehow found a bit more room on the love seat to scooch in even closer. At this point, nothing was settled, but everything was better than imagined. It was a Christmas that would be remembered for many Christmases to come. In fact, the story has been passed along over the years during Christmas gatherings and anniversaries where friends occasionally ask how Sean and Ellie first met. Fortunately, this telling is the very first, so it's closest to the truth. Well, I'll tell you, those are some good stories.
And Woodlands Online is very, very proud to bring them to you. They're also proud to have a fine sponsor, Urban Beat. Oh, and I wanna tell you a little bit more about them. So I'm gonna put my spectacles on. Urban Beat partners with local farms and vendors for the freshest food possible. It's located at 448 Sawdust Road, the Woodlands, Texas, on the corner of Sawdust Road and Booty Road. Now go check them out and come back for another episode of our special Christmas story series. Goodbye for now.